the For Us, By Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. Rising Tide Brewing. They take time and pride in giving back to the greater Portland community. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Thank you listeners for tuning in to In The Pocket. I'm your host, Flo Edwards. And today our special guest is Evelyn Wong. She is a book binder. For <laughs> uh, I hope I said that right. Um, but she will definitely correct me and introduce herself as well. So please, Evelyn, introduce yourself. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Um, I, my name is Evelyn Wong, and I'm the um, artist and artisan crafter of Fireball Book Bindery. Um, I'm not really a, a, I guess, bookbinder, if you will. Like some people like to call themselves a bookbinder, um, not that by profession. Um, it's something that I really got into as an artist. I am an interdisciplinary artist, um, and bookbinding just happens to be something I really, really enjoy. And so um, I created this brand called Fireball Book Bindery, um, where I craft uh, books that are themed with uh, very um, authentic Asian um, and Asian American designs and book bindings um, materials um, included in my work so yeah nice and Asian covers many countries is there a particular country that you emphasize your themes on yeah, so um, I try to be really true to um, what it means to be Asian American, um, because for me, Asian American is not limited to just what I am. Ethnically, I'm actually Cantonese Chinese, um, and I'm from the South. I'm from South Carolina. I ended up up here in, in Maine. And so I've had a lot of different influences from different Asian cultures. And so that means, you know, of course, I have everything I grew up with, which is very Chinese, um, but also I had a lot of influences from like the Korean community, the Japanese community, Taiwanese community. Um, and so I'm trying to, with my work and with my book bindings, I try to be, um, I really try to pay attention to what each culture does and what each culture is interested in and really try to appreciate it instead of like appropriating, you know, that's always a question of like, you know, what are you doing? How are you um, approaching, you know, Asian-ness? Um, I try to really be true to um, each culture. So, like, um, I'm particularly interested in Japanese papers. Um, Japanese bookbinding is a really um, unique craft and art form. Um, I'm really interested in Korean fabrics and materials. Um, Korean fashion is something that I'm really interested in. Um, 
And also, um, Taiwanese design is also super interesting. Um, Chinese book bindings, of course, that's another thing. And Chinese fabrics are absolutely stunning. Um, so I actually try to cover mostly East Asian, but I'm actually expanding. Recently, I started expanding um, into like Southeast Asian as well as like West Asian um, designs as well. So I recently started learning about um, Indian fabrics and Thai fabrics, which I knew nothing about, you know. Um, as well as like Nepalese um, papers and um, designs and fabric. And so those are things I'm trying to learn about and incorporate into my work too. Awesome. So when you talk about the fabrics from different countries, what's different about the fabrics? Is it the way they're woven, um, the type of materials? Is it... Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot of different things. So. Um, so for Chinese materials, like there's a Chinese fine brocade, um, and it's woven, it's woven material. It's super, um, thick and very dense, densely woven, uh, fabric. Um, it's very soft and initially, uh, it was made with silk and in more modern times, it's incorporated like silk with polyester and cottons and different types of things and metallics. And so, um, they're really gorgeous with designs of dragons and phoenixes and so they're very culturally specific designs and as well as the types of material um and then you have like korean fabrics which um korean cottons are just gorgeous <laughs> cotton material it's very rich um like uh, patterns um, that are traditional in like korean fashion um stuff that's used in korean hanbok um uh, clothing um which is very unique and special to um, korean culture then like um in japanese i recently acquired japanese fabrics i only knew about japanese papers initially um as a bookbinder one of the first things you learn about is actually japanese paper because it's used in printmaking pretty frequently um here in the u.s as well as abroad um so i was really into japanese papers but then recently i learned that there's japanese fabrics which are very similar to the chinese brocade um, but they're a much um, thicker, heavier material, and traditionally they're used for kimonos and robes. Um, so there's a huge difference in the variety of material once you start looking at them, picking them up. Um, there's a different like thickness and a heaviness, and like sometimes the silkiness even um, is different with different fabrics. So it's it's really fun and interesting to to pick them up and learn about them and. Um, just kind of understand you know what kind of what kind of techniques and what sort of labor went into them wow yeah the labor sounds intense <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it sounds like you also know a lot about the japanese papers um mm -hmm. can you go a little bit more about i guess fabrication and <laughs> yeah so um there's you know there's paper making that a lot of people i think we kind of experiment with that in maybe grade school and middle school you kind of have a tub of water with like shredded paper all up in it and then you put this thing in the water and you kind of lift it out and it kind of forms this this film of like paper pulp and you dry it up and it becomes paper you know and you have handmade paper and so i think a lot of people their first introduction to paper making is that and so that's kind of the basic principle behind um japanese handmade papers which is a lot of what i use in, in fireball bookbinders products um and so the the thing with japanese um papers is that a lot of times there's a lot of variety for one um but a lot of times if you use finer papers like what i like to do um it's uh it's made with mulberry or kozo um, which are different types of uh, plants and so um those plants have different 
fibers and the different fibers um, mean different lengths of um, fiber that get woven into the paper as you're doing paper making um, and it makes different strengths of paper and so it's really beautiful in terms of like the process that um, you know manufacturers use um, to create this paper and then you know once they have it manufactured then it goes to places where people artisans actually designed um, these um, elaborate images that they screen print um, by hand onto these um, giant sheets of paper and so they're really beautiful they're very stunning and brilliant um, really vibrantly colored uh, which is something that I really enjoy a lot. Like they have, most of them actually use traditional designs from kimonos. And so they're inspired by um, very culturally and um, very specific types of designs um, used in, um, I guess, Japanese aesthetic. So the papers and the fashion are interwoven. Oh yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's funny because like you start learning about you know, paper and textile, and they're two totally different things. But like, for me, since I use both of them, I realize like, the more I use them, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much in common, you know, it's been a really fun thing to learn about that. And you did say you're an interdisciplinary artist. So what are your other interests? Yeah, so um, I, uh, oh boy, <laughs> how can I narrow it down? Um, I do kind of everything. Um, for me, being an interdisciplinary artist means that um, I, so I initially started out not as that. Um, I, um, before I moved up to Maine, um, I actually started out as a botanical artist. And so I did botanical drawing for a really long time. And I was, um, my, my undergrad training was um, very classical, um, classically European oriented. And so I was really interested in like Italian style, you know, painting and um, oil painting and um, like drawing, you know, charcoal drawings, kind of like how a lot of old English drawers did. And so I studied a lot of that. And um, and then I was interested in kind of using those techniques and those mediums um, and really kind of talking about my Asian American identity through them. And so I was interested in plants because um, what there's a genre of painting in Chinese art called bird and flower paintings. Um, and I was really interested in those as a way to kind of connect with nature, but also really connect with like my identity. And so like I did a lot of, um, a lot of painting, a lot of drawing, and I really focused on botanicals. And after my undergrad, I really, really dig it, dug into that. And so, um, I did that for a long time. And so my skills are still mostly in drawing and painting. Um, but now once I moved up to Maine, I was like, I want to drop that, you know, I want to do something different. <laughs> and so I came up to me because I wanted to go to grad school and then I was, I was kind of, I don't know, I'm getting old <laughs> and I wanted to do it before I got even older. And so, um, I came up here and I really wanted to just kind of change everything I did and just expand like what I can do as an artist because like I knew I had all these other skills and I wanted to utilize them. And so, um, I was like, okay, you know, I can do embroidery, I can do craft arts, I can do paper engineering, I can do, of course, drawing and painting. I want to do a lot more, you know, and so I kind of, that was sort of my coming here and, you know, telling my professors at the time, I was like, I just want to do something different, you know, and so I started digging into different things and I discovered book arts, which is how bookbinding came to be. Um, 
but once I discovered book arts, I started thinking about like the book as like an expanded form. How do you move beyond the the covers of a you know the covers and then the pages inside? How do you move beyond that? You know, and so I started thinking about like the book as like potentially like on film, on video, and then like. Um, how do you do it as a sculpture? You know, how do you treat it like in, in a full room installation within the white walls? You know, within the white cube of a of a gallery space. How can you explore the idea, the philosophical idea of what a book is? You know, and so that kind of opened the doors to a whole lot of other things. And so I started, you know, kind of thinking about how does you know these how do these different forms of creating how do they um, tie into the ideas that I want to talk about? And so. Um, it just kind of naturally evolved that I started doing all these other things. So um, I do incorporate um, embroidery into what I do and paper engineering and drawing and painting and using kind of unconventional materials, even like some cooking techniques. Um, so I, I had a recent work that I, I baked in the oven. <laughs> so I'm just sort of really exploring a whole lot of different things into, um, into my work. And so that's kind of how I'm defining interdisciplinary right now. That's really cool. So what did you bake in the oven? <laughs> so there's a piece I did recently. Um, it actually, um, it was in the uh, PMA show earlier in the year, um, the Portland Museum of Art, um, the untitled um, art in a blank time um, for 2020 to kind of discuss like whatever was going on um, for people during the pandemic and so there was a piece that I made for that show and it was called uh, Mooncakes for Democracy and I was referencing the Chinese mooncake um, which I don't know if you know what a mooncake is but um, for anybody who doesn't know what a mooncake is um, it's a pastry that's like really dense and it's really um, very sweet and there's different fillings inside of it and um, because I was referencing like a historical legend, um, like a folktale, um, I wanted to kind of reference also the baking technique that was used to bake mooncakes, you know, both then and now. And so I made these little mooncakes um, that were about the size of a real one. They're only about like three inches or so. Um, and um, I basically use the idea of a book and so the mooncakes themselves were kind of this little open and closed box and you can open it up and there's like little slips of paper inside little messages and stuff and um i dyed them with atsuki bean liquid and so there's like food ingredients you can actually eat the mooncakes <laughs> but um once i got that part done uh the mooncakes are actually folded origami mooncakes and so they come together to form a little box and um to get the pastry um, appearance um, traditionally they're baked um, it's just flour and you know whatever other ingredients for pastries um, and on the outside is like there's an egg wash over it and so what I did was I took these little origami paper pieces and I did an egg wash over them with a brush and then I stuck it in the oven and I baked it <laughs> and so it's it's a paper piece with like egg wash on it and it's really a conservator's nightmare but you know <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really neat man Huh. And so did the egg wash give it like a, a tannish color or it did? Okay. Yeah, it did. It did. And it was really cool because like when it first came out of the oven too, you could smell it. And so it was really interesting because like you don't think about smelling paper, you know. And um, But when I took it out of the oven, like it had this, you know, like an egg wash sheen, you know, like if you bake something with egg wash on it, it has a nice kind of yellow tan sheen on it and you can like take it to your nose and you can smell it and it smells like a pastry. 
Nice. And the, did the green paper, the zucchini, smell like zucchini too? Oh, it's a zuki bean? Uh, oh, zuki bean. Yeah, a zuki bean. So um, a zuki bean is like this red bean. Um, I know that um, in a lot of East Asian cultures, we use um, red bean for like a sweet paste. Um, so it's actually you soak the beans and then you cook them down with a lot of sugar and it becomes this, like, um, it's called a red bean paste. Um, and so the beans when you soak them kind of like if you'd soak like hard dry beans like i don't know black eyed peas or like you know pinto beans or something like that you soak them and there's that liquid that comes you know from them um and sometimes it's like the proteins that come off of the beans and so red bean is like super super red and the liquid the soaking liquid that comes off of them is really red and you can actually pour that off of the beans after you soak them and like condense it down like by cooking it <laughs> so um i actually took that and i condensed it down to get a super dark red color and i soaked my pieces of paper in that um so you could kind of smell it at first but they they smell kind of like beans you know there's not much of a smell it's just kind of a greenish um i don't know if green's the right word but like a, an earthy kind of green smell you know like plants have so yeah fun <laughs> so how do you i've always wondered how do people get in museums to exhibit what was that process like for you <laughs> for me i think it was kind of lucky you know it's like so I, I i teach you know and like one of the things that i always tell people is that like you have to go for everything you know anytime you see an open call for something you have to go for it because you never know and so for artists you know a lot of times you'll actually see these open calls just announced randomly like um i got into a show recently because there was out on Facebook at a gallery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they just had a call that they posted up on their Facebook. And I was like, hey, we're doing a show based on this theme. You know, anybody who's got work in that or is trying to make work in that theme, you know, go for it. You have until this deadline. And so um, to get into a museum show, it's not quite the same, although this particular show at the PMA was that process. Um, they did put out an open call. It was like right around, um, oh boy, when was it? It was like right before, maybe a couple months before the election or so. Um, but they had put out an open call for all artists in Maine um, to put work in um, that had to do with like something that they did over the pandemic. Um, and so um, that was kind of how I got into that one. I think generally though, I think a lot of uh, museum shows, you actually have to go through and propose something to a museum and, or an institution. Um, and sometimes there will be open calls, sometimes there won't. Um, but you basically have to create this whole portfolio with like um, your resume, essentially your CV or resume, and then like your whole statement on what the work is about. And you send that in and just kind of hope that you, they'll look at your work and be like, hey, I like that, you know? Um, and then from there, typically it's like a conversation between you and like the gallery director there. Nice. So, yeah. and, and in that portfolio, would you have basically statements about what each piece is? Like you're writing, like yeah, as if it was for, on display? A, a lot of times they, they ask for that um, or they'll expect that to a certain degree. And so um, some of my works I know that I've done in the past where, you know, I've, I've really only been in, we'll say, 
we'll say technically one museum show. I've been in a lot of different gallery shows um, and a lot of institutional shows, but in terms of like a museum museum, you know, I've really been been only in this one, but all the other shows, I think they all typically kind of work in a very similar fashion. And so they'll ask for like a description of your works and what do they mean? You know, what are you trying to convey? What are you talking about? What's the message um, behind the works that you're sending in? You know, why should they be interested basically? And they want to know that. And so, um, it's usually a bit of a process like there's <laughs> there's a surprising amount of writing involved in being an artist you know you kind of don't expect that you think most of the time it's in the studio making art but like there's really a lot of writing involved is there a particular writing class someone should take if they're an artist oh my god i wish <laughs> that's tough you know because like i know in undergrad like it was kind of for me it was like wrapped up into to just some of the drawing classes, like the upper level drawing classes that I took. Um, I don't think I even did any, like I was both a drawing and a painting major and I don't think I had any writing classes as a painting major. <laughs> so I kind of really wish that that had been there for me. Um, I think some schools do offer something. Like I know that like Me Mecca, for instance, um, they have um, like a professional practices or professional development type of class. Um, for their undergrads, I know that we had one as um, in the MFA program, we had um, like a professional practices type of course where um, we had kind of mentorship on writing and like how to write your bio, how to talk about yourself and your artwork, you know, so that in the most clear and concise way that you can so that people are interested and that they can understand what you're talking about, you know, because um, sometimes, you know, you'll read an artist statement and you don't know what's going on. You know, I've read artist statements where I'm like, I don't know half the words that are in the statement. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's going on here. And so like they try to teach you to, to be really concise and to be really clear in like how you talk about your work. And so um, I think if, if there are, you know, professional practices types of courses for artists, that's definitely something to take. I feel like I don't know. I feel like English classes didn't really help me that much when it comes to writing an artist statement. It does seem pretty specific. And when I read, when I'm at galleries and museums, it seems like the same person kind of could have written most of these descriptions. So I was like, yeah. oh, surely they must teach them how to do this. <laughs> I think it kind of varies, you know, like some places they actually ask for. I was surprised there was one place I had gotten into, I think it was last year, and they had written like based on my work and based on the, the little blurbs that you send in with your portfolio, you know, based on those, they have written a whole statement for me. And I was like, oh, okay, there's people to do that for you, you know? So, so maybe maybe in some places they'll do that, you know? And um, I've, I've only run across one so far, but I mean, maybe there's more. Well, I'm sure you will find out in your career. Yeah. <laughs> and you said you're teaching as well? Yeah, so um, I have been teaching workshops. I've actually been teaching for a long time. Um, I used to run a work, um, excuse me, I used to run a frame shop. And so um, I started teaching there and that was sort of where a lot of my, my passion and love for teaching kind of got ignited. I was teaching workshops and training people all the time. And then I started getting into like community stuff where I was kind of teaching, um, I guess kind of the general public, you know, workshops and like um, there were different, events that happened in my hometown that were very like artist-based and so we could go out to places and like just kind of show people and, and interact with people and sh 
kind of really even show them, demonstrate with them how to use certain tools that would, and that was a really cool thing that I really liked doing. And so, um, so I've been doing that for a long time. And then like, I started doing like talks in high school and I started, um, doing like workshop sessions and, you know, at, at my old, actually in my old high school, I did that. Um, and then coming up here, um, being in the MFA program as a TA, as a teaching assistant, um, I was doing some teaching here too. And I really, I was like, I really should have been doing this all along. You know, I should have been making art and teaching and I really, you know, I love doing it. And so next semester I'm finally going to teach. I finally have the title of professor. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be, um, teaching as a professor for the first time, um, next semester. So spring 22, um, I'm going to be teaching a class in book arts, um, at Mecca. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> So have you already developed the curriculum? I mean, are you still working on that? Kind of both. Um, I, I really wanted to come up with something that was like really fun for the students. Um, since I'll be teaching, the class is an elective class. So I find that really freeing. <laughs> I don't have to follow a specific curriculum. <laughs> and so what that means is that like I kind of get to teach whatever I want to, however I want to, which is really how I function best, you know? And so I wanted to kind of teach students not just how to make certain book structures, but also kind of some of the things of like, how do you make your own book cloth? How do you um, find alternate ways of doing printmaking so that you can print um, images or text or whatever you want for your books? Um, I, I, I have a, you know, I've been struggling with printmaking for a long time. I regret not studying it more in undergrad. And after that point, I sort of wish I'd gotten a chance to do it because printmaking feels really, it's a really kind of inaccessible sort of um, medium sometimes because it is, you know, it requires tools, it requires equipment that not everybody has access to. And that's something I think about a lot. Like I think about access a whole lot, you know. Um, I didn't grow up wealthy exactly, you know, um, I came from an immigrant family. And so um, for me, you know, getting into art was a heck of a challenge on its own, you know, being allowed to do art, you know, that was already a challenge. But then to actually do some of the things I really wanted to do in art was even more challenging, you know, like if you don't have money, you don't have the means to do printmaking and to get expensive equipment yourself. How do you even access that? How do you even do that as your craft, you know? Um, and that's been something that's kind of bugged me for a really long time. You know, how can I make things more accessible for myself? And then now as a teacher, I'm like, how can I make things more accessible for my students too? You know, for those who, once they graduate from here, they don't have the same, you know, facilities anymore. They don't have the school studio to work out of anymore. So then how can they still be doing some of the things they love, but using and finding alternate methods to do that. And so that's one of the things that I actually plan to teach um, in my book arts class, like some alternate methods to printmaking, some alternate methods to making and just crafting things, you know, what are different ways to think about printmaking? What are different ways to think about color even, you know, like we have lots of ingredients in the kitchen that a lot of us don't think about as color, you know, red cabbage makes a great dye, you know, um, egg yolks make a great egg wash for, for color, you know, <laughs> there's, you know, there's turmeric for color, you know, and so there's all these things that you can do um, and explore. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I really want to talk about um, in, in the class that I'll be teaching and just kind of showing different methods for stuff. It sounds like some of the different methods would 
almost make it mixed media art. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the fun thing about book arts because book arts is like, you know, I think some people tend to think book arts is like, you know, your leather bound journals or Bibles or, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, or like, you know, a, a fancy, you know, canvas bound book, you know, or something like that. And it's like, it's, it's actually a lot more broad than that. You know, that's, that's for like the people who are like book binders. I'm a book binder. You know, I'm not a book binder. I'm just a book maker. I like books a lot. And so for me, I have, I have a little more freedom to explore um, outside of like these kind of confines of like, you know, professional book binding. And so um for me as a book artist you know i get to explore like mixed media and like i said earlier you know even installation you know how do you treat the concept of a book as a full room how do you do that you know and so like those are things that i've explored in my own work and so i want to bring that into the classroom you know and so um you know how do you mix different media how do you mix different parts of what you explore and what you have in your house, in your, you know, in your studio, in your closet, even, you know, like, how do you take all of those elements? Everything is a material, you know, how do you take all of those things and treat them as material that you can transform into a book? Oh, that's awesome. That's lovely. Um, I, I, I could talk more and more with you, Evelyn. It's very interesting. <laughs> and I know your students are going to love the class. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. So what's the, what's the plug? How can people reach you, um, anybody in the pocket and, and beyond? Yeah, um, people can reach me on Instagram. I am on there all the time. <laughs> um, they can find me at, my handle is at Fireball Book Bindery. Um, I also have a personal that's attached to that, so they'll be able to find it. Um, I'm also on Etsy, so if you go to fireballbookbindery.etsy.com, um, you can find me there, contact me there. Um, I'm also on Facebook, so if you look up um, at Fireball Book Bindery, that's me also. So <laughs> just feel free to reach out um, anytime there. The For Us, By Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.